0: Today's reading, Romans 4, verse 1 through 12. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works... Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Let that be our proclamation this morning. We believe that your God we believe that you're good, no matter what. We believe that you've conquered sin in the grave. And so, Lord, just help our unbelief. Help us when believing is more for our, more than we can handle. And just draw us to yourself. Lord, draw us to yourself right now as we dive into your word. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: There's not many worship teams that are bold enough to try to pull off Father Abraham at the start of the set, but thank you guys. That was uh, that was awesome. I was in the back and I discovered who the closet uh, charismatics are, and I also discovered who the closet Baptists were. (laughs) There were some of you are like, I should not be moving in church, and some of you are like, finally, we get to do Father Abraham. That was good stuff. So everyone has disagreements, and disagreements are both the spice of life and the pain of life. And some of you contrarians in here are saying, no, it isn't, which only proves my point. There you go. I want you to pull out your handout, and we're going to start with a little quiz. This is a pop quiz at the start of class that you loved in high school and college. And you're simply going to write... A or D. There's one through se- uh 1 through 6 listed down. Um oh no, 1 through 7 and uh you're just going to write A or D. I agree with this statement or I disagree with this statement, all right? Here we go. Number 1. People don't spend enough time looking at screens. I'm talking phone, computer, uh TV, movie, okay? That's number 1. Number 2. School uniforms are a good thing. Agree or disagree? Number three, morning people should be jailed or fined. Agree or disagree. Uh, number four, golf is a sport. Agree or disagree. Uh, number five, <clears throat> Cheetos. Uh, eating Cheetos is worth the messy fingers. Agree or disagree? Number five uh, number six, soccer is better than football. And let's get really controversial. Number seven, soccer is football. <laughs> that one specifically is for Gria, who has spent time not in America. All right. How'd you do? Did you get 100%? Yep. Of course you did, right? Unless you're conflicted within yourself, which some of those I could, I could see being conflicted. Now listen, my examples are really silly and don't matter a whole lot. Correct? Some of you would disagree with that, but that's okay. Um, We're talking about what do you do do with things um, when when things get complicated between two people that you love and and care about, and there's disagreement about really important matters. The stakes are high, and there's disagreement uh, about what is true and what is not true. How do you handle that? Here's what I want to do this morning. I want to sort of handle our in two parts. The first part that we're going to look at is, what is Paul teaching here? What is he teaching against, sort of trying to weed out some false teaching, and what is he standing up for in relation to who God is and how we relate to him? And part two of it is, how does he settle the disagreement? What are the techniques he goes to to settle disagreement when two people disagree about important matters like God and mankind? Now, the best teachers, coaches, and parents that you have that have influenced you most taught the truth, and then they lived it out. They gave you the principle, and then they showed you the practice, right? So let's jump right into what the lesson is. Uh, last week, by way of review, was sort of this big pinnacle moment in Paul's argument, and he says, but now, that's near the end of chapter 3. Essentially, life is rolling down the wrong track. You cannot stop it or change it. That's Romans 1, 2, and first part of 3. But now Jesus Christ enters the picture. And he lays out that God's righteousness is apart from law, through faith in Christ, for all people, freely gifted, and yet infinitely costly. There's last week's sermon in about 45 seconds. Today he goes on to illustrate this point. And he starts at sort of a starting point that not only Christians would go to or Jewish people would go to, but those of the world major religions would go to, and that is Abraham. He starts by looking at Abraham. And, and some questions that are being asked, uh, that I see in this text at least, see if you've had some of these same kinds of questions. Number one is this. If the New Testament teaches that people are made right with God through faith in Jesus Christ... What about people in the Old Testament? Ever had that question before? What about that? Here's another one. Were the great heroes of the past great because of their works or because of faith or because of something else? Here's a third one. Why do people teach different, uh, different things on matters of faith? There is a wide range of teaching about what God is like and even if we can know what God is like. So why is there so much diversity there? And how can we navigate through that? There's one more sort of bonus one that Paul answers without maybe even trying to, but he answers this question. How should I settle disagreements about God? Now here's what I recognize. Every week we have people that come in here and we're all individual souls. And so we have husband and wife who don't see things eye to eye. We have parent and and child who don't see things eye to eye. We have siblings and friends. We have, you know, community group leader and and a participant who don't see things eye to eye. And and yet here we are in unity, dwelling in unity, and we're going to see sort of some techniques Paul offers to us just by modeling it for us. Here is... The statement that I want you to focus on and I think sums up Romans, the first part of Romans 4. We're just going to linger on this. This is the teaching. Abraham's faith was credited as the righteousness of God without any effort or ritual. And King David backs this up. That's the lesson. That's the lesson that Paul is driving home. He's sort of illustrating through uh, Abraham and David. Now, if you loved economics class or currently love economics class, raise your hand up right now. Let me see. Okay, there's a handful of you. I expected that, Kel. Leave it up for a second. How many of you love history class? If you're both, raise both hands, okay? We've got a couple of touchdown. We got a couple. You're gonna love this. Because this is where Abraham goes. Okay, you can put your hands down. Um I've made charismatics out of you all. We got people just doing this in church. This is where Abraham goes. He goes sort of uh to to econ one oh one. History 101. Uh, I was a bank teller for a lot of years right out of high school. They didn't have phones with cameras there, so I couldn't take a selfie of myself being a teller. So I just drew a little picture. That's me in the blue shirt. And uh, evidently, we only, we only helped people who were sort of auburn or reddish-haired, tall and slender, uh, and female. <laughs> that's evidently what's happening. Some of you really genuinely don't really know what a bank teller is, kids. Let me just tell you, it's like an ATM machine that's alive. It's basically someone who actually takes in your money, hands it out, gives you your balance, all those things, and, and yet it's a living person, okay? That's that's what I was for, for a good six or seven years. While being a bank teller and getting paid to take in people's money and give them back their money and tell them their balance, I learned a lot of things. We were in a part of town, my bank was in a part of town that had, um, that had a bunch of people that were making money off of really wicked. These were prideful, arrogant, mostly men. They were foul in speech. They were foul in thought. And they would come in and they would ask their balance. And the federal government only insures up to $100,000 in a bank account at the time. I haven't looked into this a long time because that's not my problem. But these guys had that problem. So they would have one account that would be well over 100000 So they'd open another account and another account. And so sometimes they would come in and sort of to flaunt this, they would check all seven accounts. Now, they could do this over the phone, they could do this at the ATM, but they wanted to have me know, I feel like, that they had money and they couldn't even move it fast enough you know, to, to keep it there. And I knew how these guys were making their money. And here's one of the things I remembered learning, is sitting here as a struggling, top ramen eating Bible college student, to never envy the wicked. And God allowed me to not envy the wicked. I also saw the drunkard come in, and we had people, there was a bar right next door, and uh, and people would come stumbling in from the bar, and and on numerous occasions, someone would stumble in, make their way to my window, and the, the scent was obvious, what they had been engaged in in the previous few moments, and they would hand down their paper, and they would ask me to cash their check, and it was a flyer for the bank that they had sort of grabbed on the way in, and I think they may have scrawled their name on it. I'm not even sure if they got that far. But Proverbs 21.17 would say this, Those who love pleasure become poor. Those who love wine and luxury will never be rich. So when you deal with the very richest in your city, the very poorest in your city, and everyone in between, you just learn a lot just by being around people. But here's one of the lessons about being a bank teller for all those years that stuck with me really strong, and that is this. There was an absolute reality that wasn't subjective no matter what anyone thought. And here's the point. Numbers don't lie. So we were dealing with absolute truth with regard to someone's balance, And so when someone would would ask me a question or have a disagreement, this absolute truth that remained constant allowed me to do my job calmly and confidently. So when they would ask for their balance, I would just be the messenger. I'm just telling them what they have in their bank account. And all but the most extreme cases, that only happened a handful of times, no one tried to play silly games by saying, but I really feel that I have more in my account. Can we just draw on that and give that amount? No one even tried to bend reality and make it subjective. There's something about that that honestly looking back on and sort of the cultural discussions that we're having today, I really miss those days. I miss that there was sort of this absolute standard that we were all uh, looking at and understanding and not trying to play silly games with truth, This is important because Paul was not teaching a way to God that he felt was right for him. He was teaching the way to God that was right for all people. Remember that we're calling this colossal truth. This series is colossal because it's absolutely true for all people. That is the claim that Paul is making as a messenger for God. It is immovable realities that affect you whether you believe them or not. Now, part two of this morning, we'll kind of get at how do we get at truth and how do we settle disagreements when we don't see eye to eye on it. But first, um, the lesson. Know this, by the way. If you're a Christian, name-calling and attacks will accompany your walk. If you preach and proclaim the message that God's given us to preach and proclaim, you will be called a prideful, narrow-minded, closed-minded bigot. You will be deemed ignorant in need of education and a whole host of other things that some in this room could just fill in because they get called those things. While you are bullied by those who say you shouldn't bully people with your gospel, remember Jesus Christ, okay? Remember him. He was hated. He was spit on. He was misunderstood. His acts of love and charity and faithfulness to God were met with utter resistance, ultimately death and physical beatings. And he predicted this for you and I, and he is with you and I. Isn't that good news? That is good news. All right. To get your head around this passage of Scripture, you must learn a Greek Greek banking term. You ready? And it's really fun to say, so we're going to just learn it together. You can write this down. It's pronounced like this. Logizomai. We're we'll going to try that on one, two, three. Logizomai. All right. And what it renders in your, in your Bible, it'll probably say credited or considered or if you're from the south, reckoned. Okay. So it's that, it's, it's sort of a banking idea that says this. It's to keep records of commercial accounts involving both debits and credits. That's the idea behind the term. Here's why it's really important to get your head around this. This is a screenshot from, For my Bible program, everything in highlight, you don't need to be able to read that. This is an eye test this morning, but everything in yellow is this word, logizomai. It's used 10 times in chapter four. It's all the exact same word. And every single time the word is used in the passive voice. That is, this was done for this person, not by this person. So this is Abraham not crediting himself, but he was credited. It was something done to him or for him. So if you don't get your head around Logizomai, that it's in the passive voice, you would miss chapter 4 completely. You might get all kinds of crazy interpretations there. So here's what I want you to do. I've written our central phrase down several times. And what you can do is, under point one, you can just underline, Abraham's faith was credited as the righteousness of God. That's the first part we're going to look at, that opening uh, top line. Here's what I need. I need three uh, volunteers right now to to come on up. So shoot your hand up. Sadie, I want you to come on up. Uh, Kelly, come on up. And Micah, come on up. All right? Kelly, thanks for being volunteered by someone else. All right, here's what I want you to do. Micah, I want you to grab that. I want you to stand right there. Sadie, grab that and stand right here. Kelly, grab this and stand right here. Okay. Let me make clear at the start, look at me for a second. You volunteered for this. Okay? Now, there's no pay involved at all. You volunteered. Are we good with this? Just want to set the ground level. All right? Now, it's not hard. It's not hard. It won't be embarrassing. Okay? Here's what I want you to do I want you to open up your your Play Doh. I want you to pull out your Play Doh. And, oh, we didn't get the the plastic off. There you go. Thank you. We got it on Micah's. I want you to pull out Play-Doh, and I want you to create something that you're thinking about right now. Whatever you want, you're going to create something that is on your mind right now. All right? Wide open. Can you make whatever you want? Understand the rules? All right? Okay. There you go. So they're going to make that. You're going to try and uh, multitask. You're going to watch people playing with Play-Doh. By the way, for inspiration for us older types, I'm lumping myself in with you as an older type. Give a good smell of Play-Doh. It'll inspire you to be a kid again. Isn't that amazing? It does. It like floods me back to to Play-Doh land. All right. So while you are creating that, the rest of us are going to listen. You're going to re-listen or look in your Bibles. Romans chapter 4, verse 2 says this. For if Abraham was justified by works... He has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him, logidzomai, as righteousness. Verse 4, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness, logizomai, credited, counted to someone's account, okay, you guys have about 10 seconds left to do this, by the way, sorry, it's speed, Plato, I forgot to mention that part of it, all right, you with Plato, we're going to recap something, how much did I agree to pay you to do this, exactly zero dollars and zero cents, right, remember that, okay, so just keep that in mind, um, Kelly looks like she is about done. So I'm going to have her start. And if you could just hand that to me. Okay. This is what, this is what Kelly made. And what is it that you created? That's what I thought. It's a pizza. So she is so bored by the sermon. She's thinking about pizza. (laughs) Oh, the welcome lunch. This is an advertisement for the youth hosted welcome lunch. Wow. Kelly, you you gotta predict it with Kelly. She's always like four steps ahead of the rest of the human beings around her. That is awesome. Thank you. Sadie, what do you got going on over here? A taco. taco. With this is how my tacos look because everything falls out when you go to bite it. Right? That's pretty good. I get that. Big lips or a taco? That's that's really good. Hang on to that. Thank you very much. All right, what do we got over here? A sandwich. A sandwich. People are hungry this morning. This is true. This is true in church. I get it. I fight, I fight against people who are thinking, what kind of Which is it? PBJ? Grape jelly? Nice. Very good. Thank you. Listen, what I want to do is this. Why don't you put your hand out for a second. Okay? Now, here's, here's 25 cents. Here's 25 cents. I didn't want to give you guys too much money or else I would stir up envy in the church, and that's wickedness, and I don't want to do that. And so, um, or deep regret for people who said, man, I wish I had volunteered. All right. What you can do is, actually, before you guys sit down, let me let me just ask this. Um, what I just gave to each of the three of you, those who currently have money in your hand. By the way, don't spend it all in one place. That's my kid's allowance this week. Um, so you're taking my kid's allowance. So don't feel too bad. Um, um, all right. was Was what I just gave you, the money in your hand, is that paycheck or gift? Gift. Why? Because you're volunteers, right? Give it up for the volunteers. You get to keep the Play-Doh. You get to keep the Play-Doh. There you go. <clears throat> never stop playing. Never stop creating. Keep your Play-Doh and, uh, and we'll, and we'll go on with that. Anytime you are given money, it is either money that you earned or it is money that has been gifted to you. Abraham had a credit posted to his account. It wasn't money. It was the righteousness of God. Utter and complete righteousness given as a gift, not earned as a paycheck. If you work hard, hear me. This is biblical truth. If you work hard, you deserve your wages. That's just a biblical reality. It's good to earn money. It's good to earn a paycheck. That's a good biblical thing. But what Paul is driving home is this. The father of the faith, father Abraham, that we're singing about with hand motions all these years later, he didn't earn it as a paycheck. This was gifted to him. It was credited into his account with absolutely no work on his part. Now, here's what this does. The effect of this is this. Answer me this. If this is true about righteousness for a Christian, does this leave you secure in your righteousness before God or insecure with your righteousness before God? Answer me. Secure. Why? Because it doesn't depend on me. If you are crystal clear, this was always a gift. There was nothing I did in the first place to somehow earn God's attention, much less God's favor. In fact, the truth that we all know is God had to overlook all kinds of things and make a way for me to be in relationship with him. We covered that in Romans 3. So it leaves you utterly secure in your righteousness because there's nothing you can do that will strip it away. There's no work No merit, no righteous deed that you did to earn it. Nothing that can take it away. Look at verse uh, 31 of the previous chapter. Romans 3.31 says this. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. A sort of weird branch of evangelical Christianity is this. Once you become a Christian, you don't worry about holiness anymore. You don't worry about trying to live a good life. You don't worry about the laws of God. Jesus shattered that by saying, I didn't come to abolish, but to fulfill. A Christian does not stop working. Christians work. You were created for good works. We're called over and over to do good works but it fundamentally changes the equation from have to to get to. Think about it. One might be called duty. I have to do this. The other one might be called delight. I get to do this. Now, both have difficulty. If you're in a duty mindset, I have to, I have to, I have to, uh, then, then there's difficulty and challenge. If you're in a get-to mindset, there's difficulty and challenge. But here are some of the differences that I thought of. Have to living includes drudgery and obligation, and it sort of keeps this debt mentality in the back of your head. It's the voice that whispers, you better pay God back big this week. You blew it big time. Here's what get to living fundamentally changes. Living as a Christian, fulfilling your duties, your, your, your Christian responsibility moves from being a job to being a calling. Moves from being a job to being a calling. You all of a sudden find yourself not worrying about keeping track of your good deeds. Let's see, how many old ladies that I help across the street this week? It doesn't matter to you. You are just eager to get in and serve. Let me just let you in on what my last couple of months has been like around here with many, many people. This is the joy of being your pastor. I've had several people that have either checked on a communication card, emailed me, talked to me in person, and basically their message is this. You ready? Put me in, coach. I don't care where you need help. Would you put me in? I'm just eager to get in on the mission of what this church is about. I love the way this church is helping people. I love the way that this church is reflecting and living biblical community. I just want to be a part of that. Can you help me find a, a, a role and a part? I cannot begin to tell you how happy that makes me. It's just a joy. It's a joy because here's one of the things that's gone on also in the last several weeks. Rather than just taking anyone to go, yes, we need volunteers, thank you, and slotting them in somewhere... We just have a mentality around NBC that says this, you are uniquely gifted by God if you're a Christian, and our church family is less if you aren't contributing in, that, in, in, in some way. Now, you don't need a special spiritual gifting or a special um, calling of God to wipe down tables at the end of a welcome lunch, amen? Understand that, because that just has to get done. There's just so much backwork that goes on to just get stuff done. Just be a servant. Take up the towel and do the dirty job and just get in and, and do stuff. But it's been so powerful. I've had several conversations over the last handful of weeks. I've said, I hear you. I am going to begin praying, God, where do you want this person slotted in? What ministry doesn't exist yet that they're supposed to head up? What ministry does exist that they're supposed to come in and, and bolster and help out with? And it's been really powerful to see that go on. Let me tell you about an email that I got uh, just Friday, a couple days ago. It says this, I just wanted to drop you a note to say thank you. You don't know me personally, but I wanted to thank you and your staff for your service, commitment, and love for this community. It is making a great impact. Your work is bearing fruit, so thank you. Be encouraged. Keep it up with gratitude. How cool is that? That is cool. And this isn't, this isn't, this isn't Dave. This isn't the NBC name. This is just go God. Be a light to the neighborhood. Be a blessing to the neighborhood. And let's keep at it. All right. Abraham's faith was credited as righteousness of God without any effort or ritual. And King David backs this up. Here's what we're not going to spend a lot of time on is the word faith. Um, but faith that we'll look at a whole lot more next week. Um, is only a vehicle that gets us to grace, and yet it is the only vehicle that gets us to grace. Here's why I wanted to put that sentence up. I want you to mull on this quote for next week, because we're going to really dive into faith next week extensively. And here's what that quote is trying to say. It's saying, don't make more of faith than it actually is. I love the line we just sang with we believe. And when my faith is weak, God help my unbelief. That's one who realizes that this is God's story, not my story and my immense or little faith. And yet, so don't make faith more than what it is, and yet don't make it less than what it is. And again, we'll kind of unpack this more with the rest of chapter 4 because that's really where it goes. What I want to key in on is uh, this word effort. Uh, no help came from effort or ritual. So we talked about works salvation last week. We're not going to cover the word effort much, but I want to zoom in on the word ritual. Rituals are things that teach us through symbols and repetition. So circumcision, rightly understood, gave a physical representation to a spiritual reality. This is somewhat akin to baptism, right? Baptism is merely an outward physical symbol that indicates or shows evidence of, a sign of, a spiritual reality. That we died with Christ to our old life, we were buried with him, and we raised in newness of life to eternal life. Okay, that's baptism in a picture. That's somewhat what circumcision was in a picture. It's something we can see, feel that points to an even greater reality. Now, here's what happens with rituals. Ready? Rituals over time can become skewed to mean something that they never were intended to mean. And circumcision absolutely had this happen to it. God sets up circumcision as a seal, as a sign. And over time, over centuries, its importance and what it teaches and what's actually going on when you have this surgical procedure morphs into something different in people's mind. Think about other places in life where the symbol becomes greater than the reality. It messes with life. It's a bad scene. Verse nine, follow along with me. He says this, Is this blessing then, this blessing of Abraham, only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he'd been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as the seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Do you see it? Paul's answering this basic question. Look, did it happen before or after? He bluntly tells them he was credited as righteousness. He was counted as righteousness. Logizomai. It was put into his count before circumcision. So circumcision didn't seal the deal. If you go back and look at this, by the way, he quotes from Genesis 15. He believed God. It was credited to him as righteousness. He was justified in Genesis 15. Do you know when he was circumcised? I didn't either until I looked it up. Here it is. Genesis 17. You're like, oh, well, that's just two chapters. You know how many years is between 15 and 17? 14. 14 years between Abraham, you're justified because you believed. And here's this seal of the righteousness of God called circumcision. Do you see Paul's flow of logic here? He's handing this to say this to us. We get in on this because Abraham is father of the faithful. Some that are circumcised, some that are uncircumcised, but all that have what really matters, which is this sort of circumcision of the heart, the faith to trust in the living God. And we get in on that because Abraham's the father of the faithful, not just the sign of the covenant. All right, lastly, Abraham's faith was credited as righteousness with God without any effort or ritual. And King David backs this up. Let's look at this last little part. Verse six. Verse six says this, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteous apart from works. And here's a quote from Psalm 32 from King David. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Let me have you notice something. David did not say, blessed are those who don't sin. Do you see that? That would be works righteousness. Blessed are those who don't ever sin. Or who can kind of finally stop sinning. He doesn't say that. He says, blessed are those whose wicked ways are forgiven. Blessed are those whose sins are covered the one who won't get debited the penalty his deeds deserve. Now, why did Paul bring up King David? Here's probably a couple of reasons. One is he was a beloved king. King David represents sort of the apex, the top of Israel as a nation. When David was at the top of his game, all of Israel was with him. They thought, man, this is it. And that was the highest they ever got, sort of earthly speaking as a nation. There's also something really brilliant that goes on with this. bringing up Abraham, think about this. Was Abraham before or after the law of Moses? It was before, right? So Abraham is pre-law. King David, was he under Mosaic law or was he before Mosaic law? He was after Mosaic law. So watch this. Abraham, there's no law. You believe in me, you're justified. Moses comes along and the Ten Commandments are given. Now there's law. King David is under law and he is claiming the same thing Abraham did, which is we're justified by faith. So by doing this, he's bringing up those who are before and those who are under the law. All right, so that's the teaching portion. Let me spend my last few minutes um, looking at how does he handle disagreements. How does Paul get at the truth when two opposing sides are teaching different things? Here's what the rabbis of the day were teaching. The rabbis of the day were teaching that somehow circumcision <laughs> helped credit righteousness to someone. So if you're circumcised, that's your ticket Let me give one example from our day, and it's the Catholic doctrine of the treasury of merits. The Catholic doctrine of the treasury of merits says this, that there are some who have lived life that have earned so many merits. Think Super Mario gaining points in lives, okay? So many merits were earned that they had plenty to get into heaven on their own, and they actually have bonus credits that can be applied to someone else. And we have many, many people in this church that have come from a Catholic background. They were raised in the Catholic Church, and i, I it's always fascinating to me to hear that because I wasn't raised in the Catholic Church, so my knowledge of it comes from people who, who do and my own study that I've had. But... You may have remembered indulgences, right? Indulgences is what these were essentially. And these bonus credits got put into the treasury of merits, and Rome controls who gives out these merits to different people. So, Mary is thought in the Catholic Church to have lived a perfect life. Super saints had so many credits, they got in no problem, and had bonus credits. To give elsewhere. I want you to keep that doctrine, the doctrine of the treasury of merits, in your mind as we walk through. How do I handle a loved one, someone in my family that supports, buys into, and believes the treasury of merits doctrine of the Catholic faith, and, and me who thinks that that sounds off according to biblical Christianity? Okay. I want you to file that away. So instead of it being a rabbi concern thousands of years ago, let's bring it into the present tense. How did Paul settle disagreements? How did he get at truth? Number one, look at verse 3. He says, what does the Scripture say? What does the Scripture say? So if you're jotting notes, here's what you should do. Go to the Bible. This one is so vastly important that I put it first. And if I mention nothing else, this is probably sufficient. Go to your Scriptures. Now, as you're talking with someone in this church, and you come to a disagreement... It is a really loving thing. If I'm talking with Naomi and we're talking, and 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 I just say, why don't we look to the scriptures and and see what what says about this? In fact, why don't we go do that maybe alone, and we'll we'll meet back up and see if we've come to resolution? Can I just tell you, church? Many many potentially explosive arguments have been squelched because that practice goes on in this church. Husband and wife. This thrills me. A couple months ago, husband and wife are in a disagreement over Trump, over theology, over policy, over biblical truth. And they said, why don't we look to the Scripture and see what it says? And they came to more of a resolution. Maybe not perfectly lined up, but really close. Man, I just commended that. I say, thank you for being Christians. This is what Paul does. What does the Scripture say? It's so important, church, that this is what we're handing to our children. Long story short and old story new is our attempt to just say, don't do stuff over there in children's church and then once you become an adult, let's actually open up the Word and see what it has for life. Let's start you from the time you're very, very young and in an age-appropriate way, let's let's just teach you to always go back to the Scripture. So that's number one. Go to the Bible. Number two. By the way, Before I state number two, not only is treasury of merits not in the Bible, when you come across Romans chapter 4 and teachings like it, it actually says exactly the opposite of what that doctrine teaches. It is painful to have a disagreement with someone that you love. Stakes are high. I get it. But it matters immensely whether I'm earning credits and I can earn somehow enough for my kids because I really love my kids. I'm going to put them into a treasury somewhere and hope to God that they get applied to someone that I care about. That is not scriptural. When you get to Romans 4, it teaches exactly opposite of that. Number two, look at the lives in history. Here is what Paul did. He immediately jumps to Father Abraham that's where people's minds would go. And he thought this, if I can get Father Abraham, if I can show this has always been God's way, that you're approved by faith, not by merit, then Father Abraham, that will unlock the door to anyone else. Father Abraham and King David, two massive figures In a a Jewish person's mind. And a Jewish person's history is way more than our personal history. Our history as a nation is a few hundred years old. Your history is probably somewhat of a mixed race person, you know, you have to go do research on it. Man, this was their lifeblood. They talk to this all the time. Vastly important to them. Later on in Romans 15 4, here's what he's gonna say for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. That through endurance and through the the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Hear me. God recorded the Old Testament for you to read. And not only read, but learn from. You will come across lives you should absolutely emulate. And you will come across lives and actions you should avoid at all costs. God has put people before us to learn from something that's helped my faith and actually challenged me to not get sucked into just modern culture and sort of status quo of now is to read Christian biography. I don't know what it is. God put it in me. I love reading about old dead people. It just helps me. When I read about what what these men and women did and how they lived their life and even what was normal then, it shows me how frog in a kettle uh, Christians can become and sort of how acclimated we can come to our, our modern sense. Number three, firm confirmed truth with two witnesses. Do you see what he does with Abraham? Here's Abraham, and David says the same thing. All through the Scriptures, you're going to see this principle at work. Two or three witnesses. In Deuteronomy, there's actually a law. Every charge must be confirmed with a, with a second witness. In the New Testament, when you are trying to confirm facts, it says don't hold a charge against an elder except on two or three witnesses. When you are going to rebuke someone, after trying one-on-one, you're to bring two or three witnesses to confirm things. This is just sort of a biblical principle here. So this is what Paul does by bringing David into the conversation. Number four is he used logic, reason, and facts. With this particular passage, here's what he says. People, look at the time. Was he justified before or after circumcision? Fourteen years, they knew their history. He didn't even have to go in and tell them that that was fourteen years. They knew it. He was justified. He was, he was counted as right before God by faith. And then fourteen years passed. Then he was given the sign of the, of the covenant, circumcision. So he's just appealing to them sort of basic forensics that might be in a courtroom to say, let's just look at this logically. The timing sequence teaches the point. And the logic that comes out of that is if he was saved without circumcision, so can we. That's the point he drives home. It's kind of instructive too about how he didn't get at truth. Here's how he didn't settle argument very quickly. Number one is he didn't say this. I really really feel credited before God. I just believe in my spirit that God thinks I'm good. Didn't appeal to feelings. Here's what else he didn't do. He didn't let opinions rule the day. Polling and quoting current popular bloggers shouldn't have that much sway on us, people. Be discerning about what you read. Just because someone that you align with. I have so many authors. As I was a younger Christian, I really followed authors and other people and, and whatnot. And, and I've just had so much help from teachers and mentors and people who've taught me through books. But but more and more, we as Christians ought to be weaned away from that. Some of the reality is that some of the authors, I don't feel like I left them. I feel like they left me and the, and the Christian doctrine. They've just gone away and they carry all kinds of sway because they have umpteen trillion followers on whatever, and they now say this, and it causes the universal flock of God to go, huh, I really buy into what they say about about, uh, hectic parenting. Maybe they're right about this theological point as well. Polling and popular opinion come and go. Hosanna! Crucify him! Same people. Days apart. It's fleeting. Finally, he didn't dismiss to avoid the conflict. You know what Paul doesn't do here? Look, rabbis teach that you can earn it with circumcision. I really think it's this. We're both right. That is utter nonsense. Logic, people. That violates the law of non-contradiction, right? I can't be both a white American male and a, you know, peasant Kenyan farm girl. Like, those are mutually exclusive. Are you tracking with that? I got blank looks on that. I can't be both of those, right? We're not both right. So Paul doesn't dismiss to avoid an awkward conversation. Let me invite the band to come on up. We've wrapped up every single one of these messages with looking at the passage and asking this question. What does God do? What do we see God doing in Romans? And is there something I'm supposed to be doing in response? Here's what we see. A couple more things to write down. Number one, God instructs us through the Bible and history. Isn't it cool not only to learn the lesson of Romans 4, but to actually see Paul model how we should handle disagreements today? It's right there. It's right there for us if we're willing to read it and look at it. Number two, God credits our account. Here's what Paul's saying Our story isn't Abraham's story, it's God's story. Abraham's not the hero. God's the hero through Abraham. What do we do in response? Number one is this to know and grow in the Word. I cannot tell you how many times I've read Romans 4, 1 to 12. I really don't know. I took an entire semester from a phenomenal teacher on Romans. We walked through the whole thing in excruciating detail, it felt like at the time. I have never seen what I saw in the last couple of weeks as I've been poring over Romans 4, 1 to 12. That not only is there a lesson there to be learned, but there's a model of go to the scriptures, don't lean on opinions, bring other people in, look at history you know how I got at that? I got it the same way any of you can get at it, by soaking in the Word. You want to know how to grow and know the Word? Here's the secret. Teach someone else. Give yourself a deadline. For me, it's every Sunday morning at 9 o'clock. I have a deadline. I have a deadline to stand up here and say, God, help! What am I supposed to teach? What do you want to say? You give yourself a deadline. You just begin to mentor someone that you're a little further down the road with and you begin to teach what you're learning in Romans to someone else. and you will grow like like never before. Here's the last thing. Count your blessings. Do you know what we're doing here on Sunday mornings? We are recounting this basic truth. Any of you receive a Christmas bonus ever? Man, a Christmas bonus has the potential to become an extra paycheck. You can think of it that way, can't you? You can fall into the temptation of spending your Christmas bonus based on expectation. I got it last year. Every year it's increased by 1%. I'm going to take what I did last year and, and do 1% and just start spending it and thinking about it. Or you can discipline yourself to think about it this way. Last year, by, by no merit or work of my own, an amount was put into my account Just pure gift. Pure gift. And if you discipline and train yourself, there can actually be an element of surprise each and every year, even if you work the same job and they don't ever change anything for 15 years. There can be an element of surprise to say, whoa, look at my bank account. I just got a credit that I didn't earn or deserve. Would you close your eyes? I want to challenge you to think about this. The time to think about these matters is before your funeral. Hebrews 9 says, It is appointed a man once to die, and after that comes judgment. How will the good, gracious, and fair judge view you? Hebrews 11, Without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Amen.